at the book of Acts, chapter number two today, and we continue with our series here on the Acts 2 church. Our goal at the Florence Baptist Temple is to be an Acts 2 church. That's our vision, our vision, an Acts 2 church. And uh, we want to read about it in God's Word now, Acts chapter 2. And when you get there, I'll ask you to stand to your feet with me, and we'll read God's Word together, okay? Acts number 2. And I'm going to read some selected verses that will point out my theme today. And so I'll just call them out as we go. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice. He was a loud preacher. He lifted up his voice and he said unto them, you men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. And then in verse 22, you men of Israel, hear these words. See, he kept on asking for their attention. You listen to me now, hear me. And then he gives the gospel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. You know, many of those people there had no doubt witnessed the miracles of Jesus Christ. And he said, him, verse 23, being delivered by the determinate counsel and the foreknowledge of God, the cross was not an accident. It was planned of God. You have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Notice what he is saying. He's accusing them of the death of Jesus Christ. He is accusing them of a great, great sin, if you will, of taking the life of Christ. And then he adds in verse 24, whom God hath raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that death should hold him. And then over in verse 32, this Jesus, he reiterates, hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. And therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which you now see and hear. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel, the entire nation, know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? In the light of what you've said about Christ, what are we now to do? And Heavenly Father, will you lead and guide every word that I say, every thought that I think, and speak, O Lord, to the people who are listening to me. In Christ's name I pray, amen. And you may be seated. Well, as I've been telling you on several Sunday mornings in a row here, the Acts 2 church is our model. 
It is our pattern, church. It is the church that we aspire to be. I've pointed out so far, so far four things about this church, four characteristics of the church that I want you to remember. First of all, number one, I've reminded you it was a church with a great vision. They were big thinkers. They really wanted to do something great for the Lord, and so their goal was to go into all the world. That's a big vision and a big goal, isn't it? All the world. But it didn't forget the individual because it said, and go to every creature, a great vision. Secondly, they were a church that prayed constantly, almost continuously. And over and over and over, you see that prayer is the priority activity in this church. That prayer was more important to them than any other program or activity that they had scheduled in that church's life. Thirdly, you see that this was a witnessing church. They were not ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. They talked about Jesus. To be a witness is to tell what you have seen or what you have heard, or what you have personally experienced. And this is a witnessing church. They're telling what the Lord has done and is doing in their lives. And fourthly, they were a discipling church. They didn't win people to the Lord and then just ignore them. They were willing to train them and to teach them and to develop them in every way possible. They were seeking to make mature Christians out of immature Christians to help people grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's another theme, and it's not as prominent. And the theme, the fifth theme I would emphasize to you is the idea here of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. The work of the Holy Spirit in the church collectively and in the lives of individuals. And so that's my subject this morning. The message is the work of the Holy Spirit in the Acts 2 church. I broached the subject and touched it a little bit two weeks ago, but it seems like it was six months ago now to me. And so I'll bring you along a little bit, and then we'll look at some material that's very, very important to us. Here's a great question for us as a church this morning. If you're interested in the Florence Baptist Temple and its ministry, here's a great great question I want you to answer from your heart. What is there about our church that cannot be explained in human terms? You can't say, you know, the Florence Baptist Temple is what it is because of talented people. We've got a lot of talented people, and we do, thankfully. The Baptist Temple is what it is because people there work so hard or because they give money. And you can explain it with the giving, the stewardship of the church. Or the Florence Baptist Temple is what it is today because, boy, they, are, they got the organization and, and administration thing down pat. Or they have all those programs out there at the Baptist Temple. What is there about this church that cannot be explained in human terms that you can't put your finger on it? And say, it's because the personality of the pastor or the great programs they have or the promotion that they do or all that kind of stuff. What is there about our church? It cannot be explained in terms of human endeavor. There's a great old hymn that I love, and we sing it occasionally here. 
It's one of the old, old, old ones. It's called, Brethren, we have met to worship. And the next phrase of it goes, or down in it, there's a phrase that goes like this. Brethren, we have met to worship. And then it says, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Lord comes down. All is vain, empty, worthless, valueless, until the Spirit of the Lord comes down. That's the subject this morning, and that's what I want you to think with me about, the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in an Acts 2 church. And boy, the old hymn says it, all is vain. All of our talent and money and organization and promotion and beautiful buildings and programs and so on, all is vain unless the Spirit of the Lord comes when we gather together. Jesus himself affirmed that in John chapter 15 and in verse 5. Listen to the way the Lord says it. Without me, you can do what? Nothing. Not a little bit. Not something. Without me, you can accomplish spiritually zilch, zip, nothing. Nothing without the Holy Spirit. So, let's look at how the Holy Spirit worked in that church. First of all, look with me how he worked in the lives of unbelievers, of unsaved people who were in their midst there. Here's what I want you to get. Now, think with me. Listen to me this morning. Forget the hurricane and what's going to happen tomorrow and the tree laying in the middle of your house right now. Okay, if you can. (laughs) Think with me if you can. There are two sides to salvation. I would bet you that there's about 75% of the Christians that don't understand this, what I'm about to tell you. It's very important. You got to get it. You see, we emphasize so much people hearing the gospel and coming to Christ and believing in him by faith. That's half, half, 50% of what salvation is about. There is a human side to salvation, but there is a divine side to salvation. There are two sides to this thing, and if you don't get both sides, you're not half saved, you're not saved. And here is, is, is the proof of that. You'll see that here. In verse 14, it says, Peter stood up to preach the gospel. And when Peter stood up and preached the gospel that day to that crowd of people, remember who that crowd was. Put it in context. That crowd involved thousands of people. 3,000 of them professed to be saved that day. But, so I don't know how many thousands were gathered there. But I know this that when that crowd gathered before him six weeks before, only six weeks before Jesus Christ had been crucified in that town, many of those people no doubt were eyewitnesses, had walked by the cross and had seen that crucifixion scene because those were great public spectacles at that point in history. And so these people stood there before him, and then Peter in verse 23, charges them with the death of Jesus Christ. You have delivered him by your wicked hands, he says. And then he repeats it again in verse 36. 
Why did Peter charge them with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he was seeking to bring conviction of sin upon them. Listen to me. Please hear me. Peter said, hear me twice. I'm saying it more than that today because you can't miss this, my friends. If you have never been convicted of sin, I mean really convicted, if you have never truly understood that you are lost and you're one heartbeat from a devil's hell, then you've never been saved. Peter emphasized their responsibility for the death of Christ because what he was trying to do is get them lost. You can't get people saved until you get them lost. People have to see that they have the disease before they'll accept the cure. And in our world today, we have so sugar-coated everything and made it so nice and so inoffensive. And the preacher gets up and says, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and I don't want to say anything negative. Now, I mean, we want to be positive. And therefore, I know y'all are a bunch of really good people. But it might be that somewhere in the past, somebody here has done something. You've probably stolen a cookie when you were a little boy. And we don't dig in and make people feel their sin. And therefore, we invite them down and they pray a little prayer and they go out the door thinking they have been saved, but there's nothing in their life. So Peter challenged that crowd. And he said, with wicked hands, you crucified him. He, got, he really dug in to bring conviction of sin. Well, who is it that brings conviction of sin? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's conviction of sin is far more than just a guilt trip. I don't try to put people on a guilt trip, but I do try to bring, I, tr- I do try to give the Holy Spirit something to work on so he can bring genuine conviction of sin. And boy, he did that. Look down in verse 37. Because when unsaved people hear the gospel delivered by a spirit-filled person, a witness or a pastor or whatever, now when they heard this, verse 37, they were pricked in their heart. What does that phrase pricked in their heart refer to? It's referring to the Holy Spirit rising up and saying to them, look, You're lost. You are responsible. It was your sin that nailed Christ to the cross, just like it was my sin that nailed Christ to the cross. All of us had a hand in it. All of us had our hand on the hammer that drove those nails. All of us contributed to Jesus Christ going to the cross, and he brought great conviction of sin upon them. Now, hold your finger there in Acts 2 and go back with me to John chapter 16 in your Bible because I want to prove another point here to you. This is the work of the Holy Spirit among unsaved people. Unsaved people are not indwelled by the Spirit like Christians are, but the Spirit of God can come and work in the life, in the heart of unsaved people. And so in John chapter 16, we begin the reading in verse 7. And it's the words of our Lord Jesus. He's telling the disciples that he's going to send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. 
it is expedient for you. I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, if I leave you, I will send the Holy Spirit. And when he is come, when he comes, he will do what? Reprove the world of sin. Now, we don't usually use that kind of terminology. We could. It's a good term. But let's circle the word reprove there. And right there in the margin of your Bible, convict. Same word. When he has come, he will convict people of sin. Or another way that same word is translated, he will convince people. He will come and convince them in their minds, in their hearts, that they are sinful. The purpose of conviction is not to make people feel guilty about sin. No, no, no. That wouldn't do any good. That'll wear off. It is the Holy Spirit's conviction is to show people that they are needy. They have that disease, if you will, call it that of sin. They are, and that there is a cure. The purpose of the Holy Spirit's conviction is to drive people then to the cross of Christ. But if all people do is hear the gospel without any conviction, just, yeah, 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 Jesus died on the cross. I know all that. Yeah, yeah, I know. We're all saved because Jesus died on the cross. Uh-uh. No. Jesus Christ died on the cross because my sins helped put him there. And the Holy Spirit convicts me of that. And it's the Holy Spirit who brings the truth of God home here to me in a very real way. And in verse 8, when he's come, he will convict or reprove or convince the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment of sin. What is the greatest sin? It tells you right there. Because they believe not on me. See, we think it's adultery or we think it's theft or murder. The greatest sin is to reject what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. The greatest sin is to say, Jesus, I understand you died for my sins, but no thank you. Of sin, the great sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, the, the need of righteousness. Because you see, my righteousness, my righteousness is not adequate. But the Holy Spirit comes and he imputes to me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then of judgment. And Jesus Christ reminds us that all of us will stand one day at the judgment bar of God and give account of our lives. And just using the name of Jesus Christ reminds people of his perfect life, of his crucifixion of his greatness and his majesty, that he is the great judge of humanity. Just using his name often brings conviction to people. Just handing people a tract sometimes brings tremendous conviction into the lives of people. There is something about the name of Jesus that is so very, very powerful. I read this week, and perhaps you did too, a statement by Terry Bradshaw, the famous football player. And Terry Bradshaw said this, quote, you know, he works on, he sits there on the desk and all the, he's one of the commentators on, I think ESPN talks about football all day on Sunday usually. And Terry Bradshaw said last week this, 
quote. I've got a problem with people who don't respect the flag and the national anthem. All you have to do is look around. The country's getting more and more immoral. We're rotting from, the, from within, and all great empires die from within. We can't even talk about Jesus. And if we do, we're pigeonholed and kicked off the front desk at ESPN. He said, if I talk about Jesus as a commentator, if I mention the name of Jesus, obviously they have warned them, we'll kick you off the front desk for mentioning Jesus. Now, you can talk about Muhammad or Buddha or karma or whatever you want to talk, but don't mention Jesus. What is there about the name of Jesus Christ that's so controversial? I can tell you one thing. I'll tell you why unbelieving, Christ-rejecting people don't like the name of Jesus. It reminds them of the cross. And it reminds them that he's the judge of the earth. And it reminds them that they are sinners. And he is Savior. And so they don't like it. And you can get kicked off the front desk, as Bradshaw says. Now, down in verse 41 of Acts 2, if you'll go back there with me, after Peter preached and this great conviction came upon people's hearts, the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit to unbelievers is what? It brings conviction of sin. If you, go, if you can go to church and never be convicted, either you're, pretty, you're not listening or your heart's hard or they're not preaching the full counsel of God. See, the full counsel of God is far more than God so loved the world. Yes, God so loved the world. We can never exhaust that love. But God loves that world and sent his son to die. And the reason he came to die is because we're all sinners. And so when we consider the implications of that, you know, well, reality is we have to deal with those facts, those truths of God's word. Now, in verse 41, they heard it. They were very convicted of their sins, and they that gladly received his word were then baptized. They followed the Lord in baptism. They gladly received his word. That's another way of saying they were saved. That's another way of saying they were born again. And I want to show you something about being born again. Go back to the book of John with me in chapter 3 because you've got to weave all of this together if you're going to have a real good understanding here. And if you go over to John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus. He is explaining the Christian faith to him how to be born again. He's already said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Well, what does it mean to be born again? Chapter 3 and verse 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, and the water there is a symbolic term for the Word of God, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit, when you and I hear the gospel in some mysterious way, that Jesus referred to as the second birth. The Holy Spirit comes into my life, and I hear the gospel of Christ with my ears, and I understand it. And the Holy Spirit convicts me of my sin, that I cannot save myself, 
that I face God's judgment without any hope other than the cross and the Holy Spirit and the Word of God working together create in me what the theologians use the word regeneration. But I use a simple term, born again. And that means now that you have new life. Now, I'm turning you through the Bible a lot, but go with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me show you what happens in an unsaved person and what happened in you if you're a saved person today. So you hear the Word, and the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. And then in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, right in the middle of the verse, it says that you will be a partaker of the divine nature. A partaker, underline that, circle it in your Bible. A partaker of the divine nature. So the Holy Spirit comes, convicts you of your sin. You put your faith in Christ and in the Word of God, the promises, the plan of salvation, and something happens in your heart. Divine life occurs. It's not walking down front, making a profession, You can get saved and never walk down front. You can get, you should make a public profession, but but that that has nothing to do with whether you're saved or not. For those of you who are sitting out there and saying in your mind, I'm a Christian because I'm a good Baptist. I'm a Christian because I'm a good Catholic. I'm I'm a Christian because I'm a good Presbyterian or Pentecostal. Let me tell you something, my friend. You can be the best one of any of those groups, but without Christ, you're lost. You've got, you must be born again. And what does it mean to be born again? It means that the Holy Spirit has come and joined with your faith and produced in you life that is eternal and will never go away once you have received it. The work of the Spirit in the unbeliever to bring salvation. Adrian Rogers, my favorite preacher, have I ever told you that? Adrian Rogers said that like this. He said, salvation, now listen to this, this is profound. Salvation is not getting man out of earth into heaven. Salvation is getting God out of heaven into man. Don't you like that? Salvation is not getting man out of earth into heaven. That's a byproduct of it. What salvation truly is, is getting God, the Holy Spirit, out of heaven and getting him to come and live in your heart. If you're a Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit. And the difference in true salvation and just Bible Belt religion is the Holy Spirit living and indwelling your heart. Now, look at the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer then for a few minutes. Every one of us, if we're Christians, have the Holy Spirit living in our heart. Will you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? I'm helping you learn how to turn in your Bible and find references in the Bible. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. What is the basis of me standing here and telling you that if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in your heart? I base it on this verse among several others, but this is the primary one. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, what? Know you not that your body, don't you know that your body is the temple, the dwelling place, the home 
of the Holy, Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God and you are not your own. Now, he wrote these words to the, all the believers in the church at Corinth. By the way, they were not all great, great saints either. I mean, there were people there that had all kinds of problems and sin in their life, weren't, wasn't there? But in spite of that, if they were born again, the Holy Spirit had come and now lives. Their body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. There are implications to that. <coughs> Pardon me. Verse 20, and because the Holy Spirit lives within you and you've been bought by the blood of Jesus, you are not, you have been bought with a price and you are not your own, the end of verse 19. And so Bill Monroe's body doesn't belong to Bill Monroe and your body doesn't belong to you. It's been bought with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit now dwells in it and it's his habitation, it's his house his temple. Isn't that a great and profound truth? My goodness, think of the implications of that. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit living within you permanently. He doesn't come and go. He lives permanently in my body. So, if I go in a bar and get smashed, I take the Holy Spirit with me. And if I uh, tell a dirty joke, I make the Holy Spirit listen to it. You see, that, you understand this doctrine, it makes you clean up pretty quick. <laughs> makes you think about a lot of things in life, doesn't it? Because you're, you're carrying around God in your, in your life, in your body. And it's not a matter of some legalistic list of do's and don'ts. It's a matter of... I'm dragging him with me wherever I go in life, whatever I do. And boy, he could sure be grieved and hurt and quenched if my behavior is totally incompatible with him and his character. So you say it's so hard to live for the Lord, Pastor. I, I understand it's difficult. But do you know that God has provided a power for you to be able to live for him. And I'll show it to you. Turn again in your Bible. It's over there in the book of Galatians. It's in the book of Galatians. But before I show it to you, I want to show you. I, we, we call it the filling of the Holy Spirit. God's provision for you to live a life of victory. You don't have to sin. God has provided a power by which you can live above temptation. You can overcome temptation in your life. Maybe not perfectly, not every time, but overall, you can live a life of victory. And God has provided for that in the Holy Spirit. Now, if that's true, wouldn't you like to be filled with the Holy Spirit this morning? That's my subtitle. Wouldn't you like to be filled with the Holy Spirit today? Amen. Would you really, everybody, or just a few of it, a handful of us? You want me to dis dismiss 50% of you who can't say amen and talk to the people that's interested, or all of you with me here today? You want to be Wouldn't you like to be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and, and not be defeated in your Christian life? Sure you would. I'm sure everybody here would. Now, then how do we do that? 
There's three, way, three things I think necessary to be filled with the Spirit. And I'll tell them to you real quick, and then I'll show you what it'll do for you. Number one, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you have to be emptied of everything else. So number one, we've got to confess and forsake every known sin. If I want to be filled with the Spirit, I can't be filled with other things. I've got to be emptied of them. So I confess and forsake all known sin. I mean, you get scrupulous about it. Not, not just the big things that we think about, but I mean, you let the Lord do search your heart. And you say, Lord, you know, man, I had a bad thought the other day, a lustful thought. God, forgive me of that. You confess it. Lord, I'm envious of my friend over here. And you confess that to him. Lord, I've been proud. I've treated people wrongly, unkindly. I've been unfriendly with people because I had some grudge against them. Lord, I'm carrying around a heart full of bitterness. You see, until I confess, I mean and get squeaky clean and get empty on the inside. The Holy Spirit can't fill me. Number two, after I've confessed my sins, I make a full surrender of my life. Romans 6 calls it yielding to the Spirit. Romans 12 calls it, it you, you know the verse there, very familiar verse. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you surrender yourself to the Lord. I beseech you that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. God's Spirit can't fill us because we're so full of everything else, and we don't want Him to be Lord. We want Him to be Savior. We want Him to take us to heaven when we die, but do we want him to be the master and the boss and the CEO of life while we live here? That's not just for preachers and missionaries and saints. That's for every one of us. Lord, I surrender myself to you. You bought me with your precious blood, and now I surrender to you. And the third thing is then you pray and just simply ask the Lord. And he promises you an answer to that. Write down this reference. It's Luke 11 and 13, where he promises us if we will pray sincerely, he will fill us with his spirit. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? How much more will the Holy Spirit, or will the Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Now, we can't have an Acts 2 church unless we got a lot of Acts 2 Christians. We've got to have Acts 2 Christians. Not everybody, but we've got to have a lot of Acts 2 Christians personally if we're going to have an Acts 2 church. Now, you're in Galatians chapter 5, I think. So I turned you over there before I was ready to go there myself. Galatians 5 and 22. And once you are filled with the Spirit... People will begin to see it. And in Acts 5.22, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. You know what kind of love that is? That's the agape love, the love that God had for us. An unselfish love, not lust, which is much of what is today thought of as love. No, 
love. And then joy, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Do you know what I've noticed? The first three things there, love, joy, peace. I think you all have that there. Put it up for me, if you will. Love, joy, and peace, that affects our countenance. You ever thought about that? Sometimes you can look at the person and know they're a Christian. I preached at a funeral yesterday and Friday. I conducted funerals both days. And I, I spotted a woman over to my left, and her countenance said she's a Christian. Her face just had a glow. It was, there, was a, there was something about her that I kept looking at her, and I said, I bet that I'd never seen her before. I said, I bet that woman's a Christian. It showed on love, joy, peace. The next three, long-suffering, gentleness, which is like kindness, and goodness, those three affect our conduct. Patience, I'm kind, and goodness means I love the truth and I love righteousness. I want to do righteousness. And then I've got three more, and they affect our character. Faith, what I believe, my belief in God's Word, and then meekness or humility and self-control or temperance, the Bible calls it. And when I have those qualities that the Holy Spirit produces, the fruit of the Spirit, people can look at me and say, he or she is a Christian. What do people see when they look at your life. And so we all sin. I blow it. I blow it, and so I say something unkind to someone, and I violate. I'm impatient, we'll say. Well, you see, I need to go back and be refilled with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit on a day-by-day, step-by-step basis. The fruit of the Spirit, nine qualities that show up that make Christians authentic to the world around them. You remember my first message here on Acts 2? I talked about how I read about that church and how I was attracted to it, that there was something in the lives of those people that wasn't in the lives of other people, and that I was... I was, I was transfixed, as it were, on that Acts 2 church because those people had such a reality, such an authenticity about them that it just attracted me. And I said, I want to go to Florence, and God helping me, I want to establish a church where people will look like that. You see, God wants us to be attractive to unbelievers, not just to our family and our friends. If I'm not attractive to unbelievers, I can't lead them to Christ. If Jesus had been curt and impatient with the woman at the well, she wouldn't have listened to him. Woman, I'm thirsty. Can you hurry up and get me some water? No, we become winsome when we're filled with the Spirit. People are drawn to us. I can't influence anybody for Christ who doesn't like me, for heaven's sakes. You want to be likable? I've got a better idea than how to win friends and influence people. Bear the fruit of the Spirit. 
And that's the most winsome personality. People will say, I like him. I like her. You'll have influence with people when you're filled. And we'll not only be pleasing to God, but we'll be pleasing to those who know us. Now, think about your life and what I've been preaching in relation to what I've been preaching here. And if you're not filled with the Spirit, you can be. I think there are hundreds of people who go to this church, and they're good people. But I don't know that all of them are filled with the Spirit. But I want to tell you, you can be. You can be. Now that you know ignorance is not an excuse, now that you know, confess every known sin and turn from it, make a full surrender of your life to the Lord, Make, allow Jesus to be the boss that he already is, the Lord. And remove from your life everything that you know does not please him. And then pray sincerely, genuinely, Lord, fill me. Fill me with your spirit. I don't mean some sort of fanatical, wild type thing that you're afraid of. I mean that you will be full of love joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, self-control, meekness, humility, patience. Isn't that a beautiful character? Isn't that a beautiful person? We all want to be like that, don't we? We aspire to that. And the Lord has given you the resources in your heart to have that. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please, and bow your head in a word of prayer.